Let me ask you if you have a Bible with you this morning to go to Matthew chapter 9. And if you don't have one with you, maybe have it electronically with you. Um, or if you want, there's hard copies under the seats around you as well. You can pick one up that way. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back of the atrium. They're by that information table area, and you can pick one up there. We'd love for you to take a copy of God's Word with you. Matthew chapter 9, um, one of the remarkable memories I have of being with David in Africa was with um, going up into this area where he was going to have me teach a group of about 90 pastors that had gathered. And David has trained individuals from all over Kenya, um, primarily around the, the Nairobi area, but some of the pastors walk three and four hours to get to his trainings. Uh, they don't have automobiles available to them. And so because of the area that they're from is very poor, uh, there's a long journey for them. And some of them will start out at four in the morning. And they'll make their way to the Kawangwari district and then they find their way to the Huduma Center and they get up to this area where they call the Festival of Learning. And David does these a few times throughout the year and he has the Festival of Learning and he invited me to come in and speak. And so for four days I taught them the book of Titus uh, about seven years ago. And at the end of it, um, I was engaging with them in Q&A and one of the pastors said, uh, Pastor Mock, we want you to know we were very nervous about you coming. And I said, why? And they said, because of your English. It isn't very good. <laughs> and I love listening to them because they, you know, they speak with the king's English a little bit and, and a great tone. And I said, what part were you concerned about? And they said, well, Americans don't have the best diction, if you know what we mean. And so they said, but we could understand you. That worked for us. We, we get that. Well, we're going to have a bit of a festival of learning this morning of our own as we dive into this parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to invite you to join me, and I want to pray with you in just a moment. But here's what we've done, especially if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks. Um, we've laid a foundation for the parables, and this is the first parable we're taking on now. And the foundation that we've laid is causing us to discover how God used parables, how he used them in this ancient world historically to consistently show who he is, what his kingdom is all about, and more importantly, what his agenda is about. And that's what the parables do. They teach us about God's agenda and specifically about these two issues, to reveal his will for his people and to reveal what his kingdom looks like. Well, that leads us into where we're going this morning, and before we step into it, I want to pray with you. So would you join me in prayer? Lord God, I thank you for what we're about to do. We lift it up to you and ask that you would bless it. Let it truly be a festival of learning for us, that we can set aside the things that we might have been occupied this morning with, or yesterday, or what our mind might be leaning towards this afternoon, and that we would shut all of that out and invite you to speak to us and, and speak to us specifically. And you can do that, Father, because we invite the power of your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Cause your word to come alive now. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus walked to this planet during the time of the first century, it was a time of intense political tension. Can you relate? All right? It was also a time of intense oppression spiritually. Here's what's going on at that period of time. Politically, Israel was being oppressed by Rome. They didn't like the political leaders that were in charge, and they wanted to put their own leader in charge, 
And, and Rome was dealing with them constantly. There was this fighting back and forth, and they're living under Roman rule. And spiritually, they're held hostage by legalism, the legalism of the Pharisees and the scribes. So during this period of time, people wrongly assumed some things about God. They wrongly arrived at some conclusions about what God's deliverer was going to look like because they were living with their agenda and the things that they wanted to be changed. So they assumed that God's agenda would be to send a Messiah, a deliverer, who would politically rule, who would come with a force and would take over because that was their agenda. And it's always wrong for you and I to attempt to enforce our agenda and call it God's agenda. We can find ourselves doing that in the littlest things in our life, saying, well, this is what I'm sure God wants me to do. Well, Jesus was anything but what they expected, and he arrived with God's real agenda, and he was offering true righteousness, what he called the kingdom of God, the righteousness we're going to learn more about again this morning. So because Jesus was so focused on God's agenda, it confused people. It confused people when they looked at him because they predetermined what they thought Messiah should be like. And the difference between that and what he really was set the stage for confrontation, and it set the stage for clarification. Confrontation between the people who didn't like what he was and clarification on Jesus' part to say, no, this is what God's kingdom is really like, and that's what the parables do. One of the confrontations that you find is in Matthew chapter 9, and here's the background to it before we get to the actual parable. There's a social dinner that's taking place, and it's at Matthew's home, and Matthew is a tax collector. You find him called in some versions of the Bible, Levi. Levi and Matthew are the same person. Well, he's a tax collector whom Jesus engaged with. He's a person whom they would have called a sinner. The whole event disgusts the Pharisees. They don't want anything to do with it. They would never be found at this dinner. They'll stand outside and throw stones, but they would never, ever enter the home of a tax collector, even though the homes were open in the Middle East. When a social event was held, people of the community were expected to attend. And so the doors were open, the windows were open, people are engaged in coming in, but the Pharisees would never dare enter the home because tax collectors were notorious for affiliating and ostracized, or they were ostracized by the community because they affiliated with the Romans. And the Romans recognized that they were a needful evil. They were Jews by birth, but they were Romans by loyalty, and they would take money from the people, and we recognize the hostility that came from that. So the rabbis actually issued edicts about the tax collectors, and it sounded like this. If a tax gatherer enters a house, all that is within that house is unclean, and then someone would have to go through the purification process, and they'd have to cleanse their house ritually. Jesus brings a completely opposite perspective, one that they're not familiar with. He's starting to say things like a healer has to get his hands dirty. And this was a completely new thing. It hadn't been heard of before. The Pharisees would receive sinners if they were repentant, but they would never go out and seek them. They wouldn't look for them, but Jesus says you've got to go after them. He actively sought to bring people into the kingdom, and that was a new thing. So the Pharisees complain, but not to Jesus. They find his disciples. Watch with me on the screen at Matthew 9, 10. 
Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, mind you, this is not a question. It's an accusation. They're not looking for an answer to that because to share a meal with a tax collector meant you can't condemn that person. Turkey tastes a whole lot different when you're condemning the person who sits across the table from you. So they're not going to condemn them when they're eating a meal. He says, why are you you eating with them? You can't condemn them when you're eating with them. The Pharisees can't understand why Jesus claims to be religious, and yet he's hanging out with irreligious people. Now, Jesus, for his part, overhears what they say. And before the parable of the, sorry, before the disciples can step in with an answer, Jesus begins to answer them, and he gives us the first short parable. We're not even going to get into it, but he begins talking about a very humble illustration about sick people and healthy people. And he defines himself as the physician. And he brings this illustration from ordinary life, and he says, I've come to deal with the sick, not the well. Now, undoubtedly, the Pharisees saw themselves as the healthy, and they saw the tax collectors as the sick people, totally sickos. But Jesus poses a question in the midst of their pondering about this issue. He says, why are you, the healthy, not doing something to bring healing to the sick? Why are you not rolling up your sleeves? And then he goes into, go and learn what this means meaning go out and work out the understanding of this because it's a really important issue. And then he ends it this way by saying, I did not come to work with the healthy. I came to call the sinners, the sick people. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to congratulate the Pharisees saying, wow, you guys are great legalists. It wasn't his goal. His goal was to come and meet the people who needed the healing, who needed to understand what he's calling them to. Now, by the time all of these events that I've just described to you unfold, in Matthew chapter 9, John the Baptist has been arrested. And he's held in prison, and he's about to be beheaded. So his disciples have been sent out. John had followers just like Jesus. And John releases his disciples to go and be with Jesus, to follow Jesus. But they don't do it immediately. And we find them left floundering around, and they're left with their traditional ritualism, their practices that they've known their entire Jewish life. And they come to Jesus with some concerns, and they approach him with an issue. Mark frames it for us. Look with me on the screen, Mark 2.18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? We don't know how long after the meal at Matthew's house, between that period of time and when the disciples came and asked this question, but it's clear there's a connection. There's a connection to the Pharisees' question. They're sincere, though. They're not like the Pharisees throwing stones. They're really sincere. They see an issue and they're thinking, you're not like us. You're different and we don't understand it. And so they're confused about Jesus' activities because he does not conform. Now, I think we framed this pretty well. I think we've set up what's going on here in these few verses we're going to look at. Jesus is deliberately challenging the wrong assumptions about the will of God 
and his true agenda. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now the Old Testament is all they have, right? The New Testament hasn't been written. And the Old Testament specifies that people who follow God are supposed to fast, but only on one day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's the only time that God specified that his people were supposed to set themselves aside, humble themselves in recognition of what God had done for them, and fast, and then they could have a big celebration afterwards. But that's it, just one day. However, over time, ritual kicks in. Tradition takes over. And somewhere along the way, some group of individuals said, well, if fasting once a year is good, why not twice? Well, if not twice, how about once a month? Well, if not once a month, how about once a week? If not once a week, how about twice a week? That'll make us really godly. So by the time Jesus is on the planet, the Pharisees and the scribes are demanding fasting twice a week, and the ritualism takes over. So in the first century, one of the three major expressions of what a true Jew looked like, an Orthodox Jew, was that they would make donations to the poor, almsgiving they called it, that they would recite memorized prayers and they would rehearse them over and over and over again, and that's how they would pray. And twice a week, on Monday and Thursday, they would fast. So the disciples of John are still following that practice when they come to Jesus. And they're confused. Why, if we're set apart for God, why aren't you? Why aren't you doing it? Now, let's put this in a world maybe that we can understand how serious they are about this behavior. We'll bring it to 2019. Any football fans in the house this morning? Okay. Let's use the Green Bay Packers for an example. We, we won't use the Detroit Lions this morning, okay? So there's Packer fans and there's cheeseheads, right? And if you're not a football player or a football fan, you don't know what I'm talking about, but there's people who will go to Lambeau Field and they will watch a Packers game, but then there's individuals who will show up for a Green Bay game and they will put a foam piece of cheese on their head and they're called cheeseheads. And it's a big yellow piece and you can see them on television. Now there's cheeseheads and then there's the cheeseheads who will actually paint their body yellow and green. And they will put themselves on display for all of the world to see, and they don't care if the cameras are on them. They're zealous about what they're after. The scribes and the Pharisees are zealous about these practices, and they take them with great seriousness. And as publicly and as showily as they possibly can, ostensibly as a testimony to true godliness, they put themselves on display for all of the community to see so that people will look upon them to display their own religiosity. So when it comes to giving alms to the poor, they blew trumpets. They actually hired a band when they would put money in the offering box. And a trumpet player would begin to resound as the coins dropped in. Can you imagine if you went to the offering box this morning and there was an alarm that sounded when you dropped your money in? It wouldn't be very private, would it? And it certainly would be an opportunity to put yourself on display. So when Jesus said, 
they fast, but when they fast, they put on a gloomy face. They put on a really long face. This is the way that Jesus described it, Matthew 6, 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have had their reward in full. Problem is they don't view their relationship with God as a matter of humility. They're viewing their relationship with God as a matter of ceremony. And this is how it relates to us this morning. When a form of praying or a form of worshiping or a form of serving, when that form becomes the focus, it can become a barrier to true righteousness. It can actually stop you in your progression with walking with Christ. It can actually cause a non-believer to not trust in God because they can see the fakeness, they can smell it. And for a believer, we'll talk about this more in just a minute, it can keep a believer from actually seeking the will of God. I know I'm going to step on some toes when I say this, but hear this. Even going to church, even reading the Bible, even praying, even singing can become vacant, dead routine. So ritual has always been a danger to true godliness. Here's how. Religiosity is a menace, and it's not just a menace, it's a stumbling block to a genuine walk with Christ. Here's how it's a menace. It's a menace to individuals who are not yet believers, and they're looking at a believer going through religiosity forms of behavior and thinking, that must be how I connect with God. Maybe if I do those things, but that leads to emptiness, and it leaves a void, and it explains why we see in the church across America so many thousands of young people evaporating from the church because they see a fakeness in it. And it becomes a stumbling block to a person who's really a believer because that one's so caught up in the religiosity, they actually believe they're doing something to earn God's favor. And the whole thing becomes very, very sad. In the issue of fasting, this was a really common religious practice. It was so common during this period of time that it occupied a large place within their observances because it was seen as a way of gaining God's favor, of getting greater position with God. No wonder Jesus avoided that. No wonder he stepped aside from it and saying, I don't want anything to do with your habits, even though he personally fasted 40 days in the wilderness. But he did that in private, in his relationship with God as God the Son relating to God the Father. So the Jews fasted every Monday, every Thursday, fasting twice a week. That's why Matthew says they fasted often. Well, this certainly marks Jesus out as being completely distinctive from this culture that believed you could earn your righteousness. This is why Jesus said this in verse 15. Now we get into the parable. And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Uh, taken away is kind of a hint at something that's coming, but I'll get back to that in just a minute. The attendance of the bridegroom, bear down on that in verse 15. Guys, especially this morning, this might surprise you to find out that in a first century wedding, you would find the attendance of the groom, the groom's men, were responsible for putting on the wedding. 
In other words, the men held all the responsibility of planning the wedding, planning the festivities, planning the decorations, planning the food. The bride just had to show up with her bridesmaids because the groom had done all of the work. Feeling the weight of that, guys? All right. That's a lot of detail. Women know it's a lot of detail to put a wedding together. So the groom chose his best friends for his attendance to supervise all of the festivities, to celebrate the, the merrymaking that would go on together. And they stood closest to the groom during the ceremony. But they're so preoccupied with the celebrating, they would have never thought of fasting. Their mind just wouldn't go there. They're not thinking of something that they would mourn for. Fasting is far from their minds. And Jesus' point is this, the groom is here. I'm the one that you've been anticipating. The wedding celebration is underway after thousands of years of dreaming and longing and hoping and praying. He's here. The the covenant God who has betrothed Israel, he's come. He's in the flesh. Now, fasting was in many ways associated with mourning. And and long, gloomy faces that Jesus described is because they were mourning over something. Well, you mourn at funerals. You don't mourn at weddings. This is not a time to mourn and fast, Jesus says. It's a time to celebrate. So here's what God's saying. The, The fasting is out of harmony with the spiritual reality of what God's doing. God's telling them, you're out of step. You're not in sync with what I'm doing. There's no connection between your religiosity and spiritual reality. I told you I would come back to this. Hear me out on this. Just as fasting in the first century could have been ritualism and only ritualism if it's performed because of ritual, today, attending church can be absolutely meaningless if it's done apart from a genuine desire to grow with God and to know God and to worship God and to hang out with God's people. That's what church is supposed to be about. Singing worship, it can be absolutely meaningless if it's only a pretense of worship, if it's only something that you do just to associate with other people and maybe they're standing up so I feel like I've got to stand up if it doesn't come from a genuine heart of worship. God says, I don't want any part of that. What about giving money? It's absolutely meaningless if it's just done through vain repetition. God says, I want you to give joyously, not under compulsion. The reason we actually have offering boxes is so that in our services, offering plates wouldn't be passed so people wouldn't feel guilt as though they had to be guilted into giving, but rather to give out of the heart. So we put up offering boxes so people can give to the work of God because of respect for what God's doing, not because they feel guilty and have to do it. But then Jesus goes on to say, the days will come when they will fast, and he says, I'm going to be taken away. Now, the one Greek word in your notes this morning, you see it up on the screen also, it's talking about when he says taken away, it's taken away suddenly, hostily, and he's talking about his crucifixion there. He's obviously looking forward to a time when he's going to be arrested. He's going to be taken away from them and and sucked out of the room, if you will, a sudden removal. Much more significant than that reference is the issue behind the question. There's always a question behind the question, and obviously Jesus recognizes that. Obviously, these disciples of John have not yet come to the place where they're followers of Jesus. But it's clear to them Jesus is radically different than everything they've ever been exposed to. 
He doesn't do the traditions of religion. So behind their question is this deeper issue. What is it that's so different about you and your followers that we can't figure out? Why can't we make sense of this? We've been exposed to religion all our life, and I think they're really serious. And they're asking Jesus, why are you and the disciples so different? So Jesus hits this issue head on with the parable that we're looking at. He makes it clear, God's kingdom is not about bringing some new form of modified religiosity in your behavior. It's entirely a new way of thinking. It's entirely a different way of believing. It's a new way of living. In other words, Jesus wants them to understand he didn't come to put a Band-Aid on a broken system of religious performance. So he takes us to this statement in verse 16. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Now, I know that today it's really trendy to wear ripped-up clothing, right? With a certain generation, I'm looking at my daughter sitting over here because she owns a few pair of ripped-up jeans. Aren't you glad you're a pastor's daughter and you get called out like this? Okay, I'll go over to the greenhouse group. Aren't you glad you... I know it's really trendy, and I know you pay a lot of money for that ripped-up clothing, but can you imagine that there was a time when people actually wore out their clothing and they had to put patches on them. I remember when my sister started wearing bib overhauls um, in the 70s and my grandfather and my dad were so furious that she had gone out and spent her money on that and I couldn't figure out why they were so mad. And My dad said to my sister, people who wear those earn the right to wear those. Whoa. And so, <laughs> well, we won't get into that right now. Anyways, there was another conversation that went with it. But the reality was people wore out their clothing. There was a period of time when they wore holes in the knees and the legs and they shredded their clothes. Well, Jesus is using that for an understanding for us. He says this cloth that could be put on to patch it, it could actually damage the clothing further. And Rich gives you a great illustration in your parable book this week. If you haven't picked one of those up, by the way, this morning, grab one. They're free. They're on the tables out there. But he hits it from this standpoint. The patches would have been made from new wool. New wool was something that was developed over a long period of time. Somebody had to go out and shear the sheep. Somebody had to wash the wool. Somebody had to process the wool. And then they had to separate it to make it into a thread, and they would begin putting it onto a loom. And it was a really long process. And so after a couple weeks, somebody's got something really valuable. It's a new piece of cloth. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to take that new thing that's really valuable and attach it to that old thing. Besides, they're both going to have to be thrown away at that point. If a new patch is sewn onto an old garment, there's going to be a problem. The first time it's washed, there's going to be shrinking that takes place. Well, in the same way and to a much greater extent, Jesus is letting us know this is not about fixing a broken system of works-based religion. I want you to say amen if you agree with this, but it's a long sentence, so bear with me on this. The gospel of grace cannot be attached. In other words, it cannot be sewn on to these external traditions of self-righteousness It's a long one, right? In other words, you can't do things to make yourself 
more saved. This is where God's going with this. And so Rich hit a hard question this week in the parables booklet. And it hit me right between the eyes. Just thinking back over the course of my life, he asked this question. He said, will you ponder this? How many times have we in our walk tried to take those old patches and sew them on to the new truth in Christ? And it's a very dangerous question to ask yourself because discipline is good, ritual is good. Somebody came to me after the nine o'clock service and said his dad explained it to him this way, that they had a habit of shining their shoes every Saturday when he was a child before they went to church. They'd shine their shoes. But he said, his dad explained to him that it would be a dangerous thing when you go to church to begin looking at other people's shoes and see if they shine theirs as good as you shined yours. We begin putting our ritual, our self-discipline, and begin transferring it over to other people and expect them to have the same standards we have for ourselves. And so Mark Kring, I'm talking about myself, how many old patches have I attempted to sew on to this new truth in Christ? How many false rules have I come up with as a legalist? So Jesus kind of tightens the nut a little bit further, verse 17. Nor do people put wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved." Now, wine was typically stored in animal skins. You might have thought of it being stored in vases, but no, it was actually stored in animal skins. So if a lamb died or a goat died on a farm, after they had processed the animal, if they removed the hair, they would try and turn the hide inside out and wash it. But in the process, the, the only part of the skin that was cut was the bottoms where the legs were at and the neck opening. And so the legs were closed by putting pitch on them and they'd flip them over and over and then sew them shut. And the only thing left open was the neck area and that's where they would fill the skins with the grape juice. And the fermenting would take place. And the skin would react with the fermenting. It would be able to flex with it. If they put it into the old skins, it was brittle. It was dried out. Something's gonna burst when the fermenting takes place. There's a chemical reaction going on. And all the wine's going to be lost. So the only suitable container for new wine is the new wine skin. Remember what we've talked about in the first couple of weeks when Jesus tells a parable. He's taking something from the physical world and laying it alongside the spiritual world to give a kingdom truth. And this is exactly what he's doing here. Jesus is saying the only life that can contain the new wine the only one that contains the new true righteousness is a new life that's given by God. Meaning, this self-righteous system of works-based religion cannot possibly contain the message of Jesus Christ and the message of grace. Now, because of what Jesus brought was the new wine, the old wine system didn't know what to do with it. The old system saw it as a threat, so they decided they're going to have to eliminate the new wine giver, Jesus, which is exactly what they tried to do by crucifying him. Thought, well, we're done with that. Here's what's really clear. Jesus is doing away with all the old, and he's bringing the new, but this is not referring to God eliminating his law of the Old Testament in order to establish grace. Because Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. So what's he talking about then if he's not wiping out the Old Testament law? 
God's law and God's grace have always coexisted, perfectly compatible. So these old wineskins that he's referring to are not the Old Testament teachings. Rather, what it is are these man-made traditions that people have brought along as ritualism, attempting to teach people that they can earn their way to righteousness. So we've just covered two really short parables in a period of time here. It didn't take very long to get through it. And in that, Jesus is not simply bringing another version of an old method to reach God. If someone says to you, all religions are the same, you've had people say that to you, I bet, through the course of your life. If somebody says that to you in the next year in your life, they say all religions are the same, bring them to this passage. God himself is saying, wrong, with a capital W, they are not the same. That incorrect line of thinking stands in total contrast to the true kingdom of God. What Jesus is telling us is that he came to save by grace through faith, and we can't earn it. Our religious behavior doesn't get us there. So Scripture says this, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is what, church? It is the, the gift of God. Can't earn a gift. So it goes on to say, not as a result of what? Not as a result of works. So that I can't stand on a corner and blow a trumpet and say, look at the money I'm giving to the poor. So that I can't put on a long face and say, look at me mourn. So that I can't make people think I'm more religious than I am. Here's the great news about this information. You don't have to do anything. You just have to receive what God's offering. You come to him and say, here's who I am. I need you. And God says, I got it from here. I'm really good with that. I'm really good with not having to add one more thing to my to-do list this morning. How about you? I don't need one more thing to do. I'm guessing you don't either. So you don't need the religiosity, the ritualism that goes along with these things. In his coming, Jesus won your victory. He won the victory against sin. He won the victory against death. He won the victory against Satan. Yesterday, my family and I were able to conduct a funeral service for my father-in-law. We drove down to Ohio and I led that service. 55 years as a senior pastor. He died at 86 years of age and I was able to stand before that group of people who had gathered and said, John Dantema is in the presence of the King of Kings to which they could say, amen. And it wasn't because he was a pastor for 55 years but it was because he recognized Jesus as his savior. Being a pastor was just an external expression of what God had done for him. In his coming, Jesus won your victory. He won the death penalty for himself so that you wouldn't have to. He took it upon himself so that he could destroy Satan and destroy death. So on the basis of the finished work of Christ the groom, nothing more has to be done for you. And that means nothing more can ever be the same because the blood has been shed, your sin has been forgiven, death has been defeated, and the bridegroom has risen again, amen? He's risen again. 
So now as a result of all of that, the Spirit of God is within us and is with us, meaning the wine is new. Heavenly Father, I pray for our church this morning. I pray that we would not take on false religious behavior, but rather that we would walk before you in the power of the Spirit, that we would be a church who pursues what you've called us to do, not behavior for the sake of behavior, but rather because it accomplishes the goal of pointing people to the King of Kings. I thank you, Father, for discipline. I thank you for regimen. I thank you for the practice of repeating things. But where that conflicts with our walk with you, God, call us out on it. Call us out so that we would draw people to you and that we would see ourselves chasing after godliness in the way that you called us to do it. I pray for this. I know that that's your heart, God, that our walk with you would be pure. So I ask for this in Jesus' matchless name, the one who said, it needs new wineskins, and thank you, God, that you brought it. We ask for this in the name of our King, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.